0: Hello everyone. Welcome to the third official episode of the ProLabs podcast. On this podcast, we talk about everything there is to fiber optics, trending news stories, product reviews, as well as expert discussions about the best networking solutions out there. My name is John Eichel and I'm the Chief Strategy Officer at ProLabs. And joining me today is our co-host, Ray Hagen.
1: Hey, thanks, John. As you mentioned, my name is Ray Hagen. I'm the Global Procline Manager here at ProLabs. The topic of this episode is to talk about all the exciting innovations in the access layered network technologies. So, John, when we say access network technologies, you know, I take it, you know, being you know old telecom guy, that this is the fiber getting closer and closer to the customer. So I know we've talked a lot over the last year or so about DAA, you know, um, and that you know, distributed access architectures. And really, what does that mean? Uh, that's the bigger thing a lot of customers say. So uh, can you explain to us a little bit about, you know, what you, you consider DAA to mean to the customer?
0: Sure. So I think the DAA architecture was probably birthed in the idea of uh, HFC distribution. However, we're starting to see DAA architectures that applied upon as well. But it's the idea of pushing more of the intelligence, whether it's uh, remote fire, or remote Mac PHY, out of a centralized location, whether it be a hub site or a central office or wire center, um, out into some type of field cabinet or field node that's either uh, side street mounted or strand mounted. So deaggregating and decentralizing some more of the processing of the, the users in traffic um, that allows these telecommunications providers to scale beyond what the walls of their existing buildings might allow them to if everything remained completely centralized.
1: Got it. So this is almost sounds like a real estate issue then, right? Where?
0: I think at the end of the day, it it, it, it helps expand the ability of, of scale and bandwidth, whether, whether the access medium is coaxial cable or fiber optic or even DSL. Um, beyond, yeah, as you mentioned, just the, not just the, the real estate, but power and cooling and the limitations that exist in some of those buildings that were built, you know, in many cases, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago.
1: Yeah, yeah that's a great point. Great point. So, where, you know, where, where are we at right now in the DAA continuum, if you will, if we start we're starting out with HFC, hybrid fiber coax, you know, where are we at on the continuum?
0: So, I think the adoption of DAA, uh, you know, specifically with North American cable providers, is very much in its early uh, infancies. So you've got you know a couple of uh, big providers that really dominate the US market, and then a handful of, of true tier two cable providers, and then quite a few still small um, tier three providers. What we're seeing um, for distributed access architecture, uh, at least with one of the big providers, is the marrying of that plus a virtualized CMTS solution. So not just pushing uh, the the Ethernet or IP network further into the network uh, at the transition to coax, but also uh, the removal of kind of big iron CMTS in favor of virtualized server based uh, or cloud based architecture. So we're we're certainly seeing a a large scale field trial go on um, with one of the two major U.S. Uh, cable operators. Um, the second major U.S. cable operator is is uh, uh, has not made any public announcements or field trials, but we know that they also must be well down the line with, with DAA uh, engineering and architecture solutions.
1: All right, great. So if I, if we're hearing you correctly, so, you know, it sounds to me that, you know, the we're pushing digital now right out into the field. And so this digital conversion or whatever you want to call it is really located, you know, in the, in the head end and, or, then it's working its way out to the edge. So what sorts of differences in technology between the the current analog technology and the digital technology? What what's the impact there to the to the network and to the customer?
0: Yeah, so if we if we think about a traditional hybrid fiber coax networks that cable operators might have built, you know, two or three years ago, you would have a CMTS, the cable modem terminating system that would be located in, you know, centrally in a hub. Um, the CMTS would generally output RF energy. So a F connector or some type of physical coaxial connector. That would go through a series of combining networks to combine other downstream services like video or out-of-band management for set-top boxes and pilot signals. Um, Those would be then injected via RF into an analog laser and that analog laser would would operate either at 1310 nanometer or 1515 nanometer and broadcast a downstream analog signal to a node where the node would then receive it in the field, convert that analog signal back to RF, and then the signal would travel RF through hardline coaxial cable and amplifiers through a tap, through a drop, and into a customer's home. So the, the hybrid fiber coaxial network in the downstream was was mostly analog and in the upstream followed a similar path, although the laser may or may not have been digital depending on the node platform, but by and large, no IP to the field. So you had kind of proprietary uh, analog and digital uh, mediums that were, were transmitting these signals over the fiber into the field node and then converting back to RF. And with DAA, the idea is that we push the IP network over standard uh, fiber optic, either 10, 25, or 100 gig uh, transceivers, all the way to some field node. And at the field node, the intelligence begins to exist. It converts those RF signals directly to IP instead of through a physical uh, analog layer medium uh, in both directions. So, so yes, at the end of the day, we're pushing IP service provider IP core closer to the edge.
1: Got it. So then at the same time, you know, the service providers are reusing that existing fiber plant they perhaps had for the HFC network and it limits then the amount of fiber they have to build then all the way from the wire center towards the customer. Maybe they can branch off and spurs or what have you with a digital, you know, um, IP pushing it further might make it a little bit easier for them to do so. It definitely
0: drives scale into that existing fiber network. So you can take, you know, existing strands of fiber and run many, many 100 gig signals down that fiber, you know, terabytes of info, or terabits of information rather, um, down a single pair of fibers. And then, you know, the cable operators have done a terrific job of pushing fiber further and further into the network. So uh, as node sizes have continued to to decrease and bandwidth continues to increase and uh, cable operators have moved from, from series of, of cascades, if you will, of up to 30 amplifiers down to generally node plus one amplifier or node plus three amplifiers, the fiber has inherently gotten closer to the customer anyway. And it, it sets them up for very good continued um, realization on their, their HFC investment, but also sets them up for kind of the future, uh, which we'll talk about, I think, later in this podcast for going directly fiber to the end user or PON. Right. So it, it it kind of it enables them to take a a, a very natural uh, pathway to to fiber all the way to the premise without um, you know abandoning uh, a terrific investment that they've made in HFC.
1: Right, I think that you know that's a that coax element to the home can still push a lot of data, a lot of data, a lot of services today that maybe a, a twisted pair infrastructure could not. So yeah, they're definitely yeah. that side of the house is is a. Yeah. Uh,
0: you know i i think you know specific to to da architectures and kind of the transceiver world that we we operate in you know the the move from analog lasers to to transceiver and ip based has required a a huge concern or consideration of retooling and retraining of what was the traditional cable plant uh, technician or cable plant engineer and so as we think about transitioning from analog lasers you have technicians and engineers that are very familiar with light and fiber and splicing, but they may not be um, as familiar with IP based networks and transceivers and how those devices work. And we talk about wanting to take a single pair of fibers and operate dozens, if not uh, many dozens of nodes at the end of it and needing DWDM access technologies um, and transceivers that would need to be tuned uh, to specific frequencies during a repair or a regroom of a, a DWDM line, so that kind of leads us to, you know, ProLabs' Clarity AutoTune solution, which really uh, enables and powers that DA architecture to be virtually plug-and-play. And Ray, I know you were instrumental mm-hmm. in our product line development of of, uh, of that product. You want to talk for a minute, kind of about what the how it works and the benefits.
1: Absolutely. You know, we could probably spend an entire podcast talking about the different tunable technologies, and maybe we will, huh? Uh, pretty to there, but, uh, you know, one thing that the auto-tune or clarity auto-tune where, where it brings to network elements is, you know, uh, tunable optics, tunable DWDM optics, um, pluggable optics have been around for a little while. Most of the time it was, um, you know, the actual tuning of the optics was done through a, a CLI on a switch, and a technician would have to you know, be trained and using that CLI and then tune it to the right um, bandwidth, sometimes frequency, depending upon how finicky the system is, that sort of thing. It wasn't, it sounds great. Um, probably not all that you know, probably well-trained trained technician can, can pull it off pretty easily, but and not all um, the
0: platforms support tuning natively.
1: Well, right? that's like exactly it. Not all do. And uh, a node, right. Uh, uh, DAA node certainly does not, um, support that kind of tuning. So what the Clarity Auto-Tune solution does is it actually brings the tuning technology onto the, onto the transceiver itself. It can then bring that to other hosts that um, don't support tuning. By simply plugging it, um, the two um, transceivers um, send out pulses until they pair up with each other, establish link, and essentially they're done. So almost a you know, plug and play type of um, provisioning of that and tuning of that DWDM connection.
0: So, Ray, really the, the, the Clarity Auto-Tune allows you to take a kind of a non-DWDM-aware device, put DWDM optics in it, and not just have them operate, but also operate somewhat automagically, where they figure yeah. out which MUX port you've plugged into. As long as they're plugged into the same MUX port on both ends, they they find their frequency tune and just operate.
1: That's exactly it. You know, it's, it's not all that complicated. They just simply send out pulses of a light for the right bandwidth or until they reach each other and they say, Oh, you're channel 21. Oh, you're channel 21. You know, we're paired, we're good to go. So that's essentially how it works.
0: It's interesting that, that, um, you know, having been in the business so many years to see transceiver technology evolve where that much intelligence begins to exist on the transceiver. um, Yeah. And and it just continues with, with, you know, uh, next generation coherent optics and, and more and more uh, intelligence shrinks and gets put on on pluggables.
1: Yeah, I think it's. I think more is to come in that area too. When it comes to this sort of intelligence, we're going to be able to see from optics in terms of remote monitoring and things of that nature. There'll be there's more to come for transceivers.
0: Well, Ray, we've we've talked a little bit about um, DAA and and kind of the move from um, centralized access solutions and big iron to more distributed access solutions for HFC specifically and the benefits of scale and the ability of the operators to maximize that HFC footprint while kind of preparing themselves for what might be next with with Pawn Access architecture. And I I think that leads the conversation really well into what's going on really with the more traditional telcos who had that legacy somewhat crippling twisted pair infrastructure, um, who, who finally I think realized We've reached the end of uh, end of useful capability of twisted pair. So we we came out with thirty different flavors of DSL and and increasingly better throughput performance. But at the end of the day, um, I think the telcos have figured out that that their evolution is fiber to the premise.
1: Well, that's that's exactly it. You know, fiber of the home and pond. You know, is actually not a new thing. It's I remember um, working with telcos back in. You know 2005 2004 on the on the really first scale fiber the home deployments here in the, in the us and at the time you know there was some fiber the home done in asia especially fiber like fiber the unit a little more mdu type things but you know, here in the us and that's when it really started to take scale with um you know with some major service providers you know offering that scale for the whole industry to use and g was the first um um was actually the second generation technology for PON. The first generation of technology for PON was called B-PON or Broadband PON. And when the the early adopters of this B-PON, when they decided that we need to upgrade to G-PON, and essentially G-PON meant you know gigabit PON, and it meant a gigabit on the upstream, they really had to do a a forklift upgrade from the B-PON system. You know, take that old system out. Put gpon in in order to upgrade that line to to uh, gpon they both uh, transmit over 30 you know 1310 upstream and 1490
0: downstream so no overlay and intercompatibility
1: you may have an overlay of 1550 rf video on your bpon because it didn't really support it and on your gpon if you didn't have ip video you probably had to do the you probably just did the 1550 anyway i think most uh, just from my past experience a lot of the uh Providers who had a, a plant kept the 1550 RF overlay anyway, because they thought it provided a higher quality video image. I think things have changed today with IP video um, being much better than it was, you know, I guess that was 15 years ago now. Holy cow. Anyway. Don't, uh, date,
0: don't date us, Ray. Don't <laughs> date
1: us. <laughs> so, you know, one of the big things upon technology, it's, you know, one thing they've, um, service providers Really done is they tried to maximize the OLT. So when they talk about OLT, that's the single port on the card that would then go to a fiber, a passive fiber optic splitter that would then distribute to each individual home. So it'd be a single fiber to every home. So we talked a lot about DAA, and there are still electrical and active components in the in the network. Whereas PON, pa- passive optical network, there are no active components from OLT to OMT. So from the uh, main end to the to the stopping end. There there are no active c- components, and that really helped uh, those service providers reduce their maintenance costs on that network. That was a big driver.
0: Plant maintenance would have to go way down with nothing, but yeah, you know, f- fiber splices don't don't have electronics, and therefore they aren't subject to the same break fix. I think that uh, that exactly you see with other access mediums. Exactly. um Ray, you know, we, we talk about PON, so like conceptually, it's a passive optical network with splitters and fiber infrastructure, but um, you, you started with B-PON, and then you talked about G-PON and this natural evolution, and, you know, if you, if you spend any time in the SP arena, um, you're going to hear uh, about a dozen other types of PON, it, and it kind of reminds me of DSL and ADSL and ADSL2 and XDSL and VDSL and VDSL2 and HDSL, and Thirty other DSL flavors. I feel like we 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 have a similar situation going on with PON, perhaps not quite as complex, and in many cases more interoperable. But do you want to talk about kind of the differences between GPON and EPON, and then this this kind of industry move that we see from GPON to XGS PON or even a combo uh, architecture? Would, would you kind of want to elaborate on what that looks like and why? Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. So we need our secret decoder ring, right? That we all need to have here, just to kind of, you know, okay, this is without any, anyway. Um, the EPON um, and GPON are, are were the two um, deployed technologies, uh, probably since two thousand and six, two thousand and seven, up until very recently. Uh, the choices were either GPON or EPON, and EPON was primarily deployed in, say, you know, maybe uh, European markets, perhaps in Asia. Or with the MSO market, where GPON was very much deployed by uh, telcos in general. And Ray, and, what is the
0: core difference between the two?
1: Yeah, so EPON is one is one gig symmetrical upstream and downstream that share bandwidth amongst the people on that pond or on that splitter. And the other fundamental difference is, is Ethernet based. So EPON stands for Ethernet. GPON had a bit of a, a bit of an Ethernet underpinning or not Ethernet. I'm sorry, ATM underpinning to it. So more of a timing piece of it, whereas Ethernet was Ethernet packets, you know.
0: So a co- collision base versus time.
1: Exactly. Time exactly. So, you know, the GPON was perceived as having a little bit better performance perceived as such. The EPON, um, EPON uh, served the bill for the customers who had it.
0: Did, did we, did we see kind of the telcos? I think you, you kind of mentioned it, but GPON had that ATM underpinning and, discrete voice channels uh, based on that versus um, EPON, which was kind of a more ubiquitous IP and Ethernet access medium. So do you think the telcos kind of favored GPON because it, it kept that kind of that sacred voice traffic separate for yeah. quite a long while?
1: I think, I think that's, that was the, you know, definitely makes sense why that was the underlying, uh, um, the ATM was familiar. They knew that was a voice quality technology and, you know, from companies that, voice service you know provide voice service for hard ears. very much a um, you know what they what they are familiar with and wanted to make sure that they could still provide high quality voice services high reliability
0: and i think you know as as voip has evolved we're seeing more and more um you know even core legacy telcos moving to you know voice over ip services oh, yeah. i think the Absolutely. protocols have improved and Certainly, the scale of IP networks has has improved the bandwidth.
1: Yeah, I think as long as the regulations are in place for Lifeline Voice, you're not going to see that change.
0: It's not going to disappear completely. Yeah,
1: you know, whereas the MSLs don't have that regulation when they provide voice service, it's not Lifeline Voice.
0: Right. The. Um We we talked kind of a little bit then about the difference between GPON and EPON. Yeah. Um, When we hear like GPON and XGS-PON and Combo-PON, can you talk about kind of what's going on in the industry with that? Why absolutely? Why the move to XGS-PON and what does Combo mean?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So you know, one thing that this uh, the next generation of PON services are here, and it's called um, on the GPON side, it's 10 gig PON or X for X for 10. 10 gig PON, 10 gig GPON, and that uh, 10 gig GPON XGS PON is 10 gig symmetrical upstream and downstream 10 gigs. So
0: unlike GPON that was somewhat asymmetrical with like right. two two and a half and one and a quarter ish, right. um, we now see a true 10 gig symmetrical service. Yes. Um, is that driven by business services, or what's driving the need for symmetry?
1: Um, you know, there is an an asymmetrical standard that is was introduced at the same time called XGPON, which was 10 gig down and five gig up but at the end of the day i think it's just a matter of you know what why are we messing around with um, asymmetrical any longer uh, upstream that's, bandwidth is a is a very real thing and we you know if if the technology is there let's use it i think well Jenny, and, and we
0: talked about that upstream of the telework and covid19 absolutely on a previous podcast so we're certainly seeing the need for for consumers to have more of that upstream bandwidth in their
1: homes uh, right absolutely now. and what the, yeah, absolutely with, with XGS-PON probably the big thing for service providers is the ability to coexist with GPON. And what does that mean? It it means that the two technologies can exist on the same network. They are um, they're operating at different optical wavelengths. So XGPON pon is opt- is operating over 1577 downstream and 1270 upstream whereas GPON is, you know, 1310 1490. So on the same optical network off the same splitter they can have, they can provision different customers for different services based upon based upon um, their subscription level. So it does provide a lot of, uh, you know, for business services, for wireless backhaul, for, um, you know, high value home residential services. It offers them a lot more flexibility to be able to do that.
0: Uh, really maximizing and, that fiber investment.
1: Absolutely, and, and there's a couple different ways they can, Get these services to coexist, and you know the first way is using a regular, you know, a coupler, a WDM to combine to physic to passively combine GPON and XGSPON under the same fiber infrastructure. And the second way is actually what you mentioned; it's called combo PON. Combo Pond's is a relatively new thing, and there's a few uh, access platforms that are offering this functionality. And it has both uh, GPON and XGSPON technology or lasers, if you will, and receivers in the same package. I mean, from the same transceiver, you can, you know, know, using the switch, you'll tell that transceiver, you know, to use the XGS PON or G PON from the same transceiver. So simultaneously out of the same same transceiver.
0: So, so that really good um, kind of evolutionary model. So if you had a provider that was G PON based today, they could upgrade the OLT optic or the OLT port and overlay XGS Pawn right on top of that G Pond without touching the customer premises, the existing customer premise.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Or even just so it's easy as dispatching our technician to simply swap out an SFP at the home. So oh, that's a really, nice. you know, really um, low touch upgrade model.
0: Ray, is the, are we seeing big adoption on XGS Pawn? There's there's always a cost and and. In- benefit curve to, you know, the adoption of new technologies. So new technologies come out, they cost more money. Um, they may or may not fit a current business model. Are we starting to see that adoption of XGS PON, or is it still too new to be, you know, highly adopted in the uh, SP
1: world? I think over the last um, seven, eight months, for obvious reasons, um, XGS PON has is, is gotten a lot of interest from, all of our customers in general. XGS Pond is, is being deployed, is being deployed in limited, you know, or I guess you'd say in trials with the biggest telco carriers in the world right now. And they are looking to use it as part, not all, but part of their strategy as they look to um, broaden their their um, fiber of the home coverage to their customers. I think that's the key thing. Part, you but see not a point?
0: all. Do you see a point? So so Pond will continue to live on. For quite a while is a lower cost solution. Do you see a point where G Pond kind of fades away into the sunset and XGS Pond just becomes the, the de facto standard?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, there's a couple uh, factors why that might happen. And one is the increased uh, split ratios that XGS Pond has. XGS Pond can split up to 128 splits, whereas G Pond can, so it's 120 homes per OLT. So it brings the economics to that OLT down, you know, it brings it into the ballpark, if not on par with Chimpon.
0: Is, is that because of higher transmit and, and more sensitive receivers or what gives it the ability to do that much greater uh, split ratio?
1: Yeah. You know, it's got a little bit higher um, link budget to it. You know, there's a few other options there you've got, you know, they've got, you know, in the regular transceiver world, we're used to, you know, SX, SR, LR, LX, yeah, they got their own nomenclature here for GPON that um, can sometimes get a little uh, hairy for people like B+, C+, D, N1, N2, E1. So there's, there's a few different things out there. But overall, I think uh, you know, the technology itself is, is designed to be able to, to uh, achieve and strive for that higher port density. So I think that's the big thing going for it, no, right. along with a little better, um, little, you know, additional link budget.
0: You know, within ProLabs, you've you've really helped pioneer the the deployment and, and productization of our of our PON portfolio. So, just everything from legacy GPON and EPON up through these 10 gig and combo optics is is ProLabs providing kind of the full gamut of of transceiver solutions. Are there new yet more new transceivers coming, or um, is the portfolio somewhat filled out and and we're in a an operating model?
1: Yeah. Um- We've got, you know, for what's being deployed today, you know, we've got perhaps the widest portfolio um, or everything we need or everything that our customers need today. I think right now we're adding some, um, we're looking at adding some new things on the GPON side. We're going add a, what they call a D optic. We hope to add soon, which will be, uh, you know, the old um, B plus optic, you know, 20 kilometers C plus optic. If you're thinking one by sixty four optics on GPON, and now with D, you know you're really looking at pushing that um, for maybe a twenty to forty kilometer range, depending upon your split ratios, to you know beyond forty kilometers potentially with with um, D technology. So that's something we've got in our in our sites down the road. We're also looking at making sure that we're offering um, a complete ITEMP temp solution across the board with all of our GPON optics because we're seeing you know in, in places like in the MSO world where um, uh, PON optics are being placed into these nodes as part of their DAA strategy. Okay. Well, so, and, and, you know, and we any need kind of chills I-Temp. yeah, yeah, any
0: kind of distributed architecture is going to require ITEMP because it's no longer so, in a in a climate controlled uh, data center or, or telecom facility. Um, so, Ray, we talked a lot about coexistence and the kind of the natural progression from GPON to XGS-PON. Is there anything else exciting coming in the PON world?
1: You know, out uh, of the pond world, how, how which things are shaping out right now, um, the next kind of big thing down the road is going to be 25 gig and 50 gig pond.
0: And so you think that we, we won't go straight to 100 gig. There will be a natural progression to, I'm going to say lower speed jokingly. When I started my career, um, 1.5 megabit T1s were really high speed. So, um, and we thought we'd never exceed the... Uh, Unbelievable bandwidth of 100 megabit fast Ethernet. So I jokingly said right. it. But do you think these these lower quote unquote lower speed ponds will come as opposed to a natural jump to say 40 or 100 gig?
1: Well, where, where I think these are going to fit into the the overall scheme is going to be with um, 5G networks. Okay. Where they're going to be using this 25 gig and 50 gig to help feed from a you know a 50 gig um, 5G interface out to various antennas in the field or to um you know or to feed other you know distributed units or central units out in the field so i think that's where we're going to see a lot of of those initially fit into the into the fold but that's that's probably going to be some time in you know next year 2022 perhaps before those come on the steam so that's going to be a little while
0: so we'll add that to one of those future podcast topics like you mentioned future
1: way off in the future yes
0: All right, guys. Well, I think that's going to do it for this episode. I want to thank everybody for listening in to us uh, in this episode of the ProLabs podcast. Please follow us on whatever podcast platform you're listening to us on, and also subscribe to the ProLabs YouTube channel if you want to see the video version of this podcast.
1: For any questions about ProLabs or any of our products and solutions, please visit our website, www.prolabs.com. Thanks again, and we'll see you in the next episode.